Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. Hey, can we thank our worship team for leading us this morning? That was really awesome. Thank you, worship team. Well, hey, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really excited to study God's Word with you together. Who's going to be watching the Cardinals game later this afternoon? Yeah, hopefully it's been an exciting and kind of nerve-wracking time to be a baseball fan in St. Louis. I thought since it's end of September, almost early October, it would be fun for our intro to talk about baseball, but I want you to imagine a different kind of baseball. Can you imagine trying to play baseball while wearing a blindfold? Such a sport actually exists, and we have some pictures of it. It's called beatball or blind baseball. It may be a little bit hard to see in that picture, but the guy who is hitting the ball is actually wearing a blackout blindfold. Here's how the, the game works. Those who are visually impaired or blind play along those with visual sight, but those who, who can see wear blackout blindfolds, so they aren't able to see. Everyone but the pitcher and the catcher wears a blindfold, and the ball actually emits a constant beeping sound so that you can hear it as it approaches. When batters make contact, they race toward a rubber pylon base that emits a buzzing sound so that you can hear where it is. Blindfolded fielders search for the ball, often on their hands and knees, trying to find it. And how the scoring works is that if you reach the base before a fielder can find the ball and hold it over their head, you score a run. It sounds like a lot of fun, but also really, really challenging. There was a tournament here in St. Louis, and that's where these pictures are from, and 16 teams played last summer, and this blind baseball is actually kind of a big deal, and thanks to St. Louis Public Radio for letting us use these pictures. But can you imagine trying to hit a baseball blindfolded? Can you imagine racing towards a rubber base when you weren't sure where it was? Or craziest of all, hearing a fly ball coming towards you at high speed without being able to see it? I'm not sure I'd be very good at blind baseball. If you asked my second grade Little League coach, he would have told you I wasn't very good at normal baseball either. I was kind of a out in left field, excited about the snow cone kind of player, if you know what I mean. <laughs> blind baseball sounds incredibly challenging. Those who know the sport well say that those who are blind are actually the strongest players, and they're frequently the MVPs of the tournaments, which makes sense. They've spent their entire lives navigating the world through hearing and, and, through hearing and touch. Excuse me. They're able to trust their other senses and instincts in a way that players with visual sight can't. So they swing harder and run faster and chase down fly balls with fearless abandon. Becoming good at beatball would require you to learn a completely new set of skills. With your sight removed, you'd have to learn to see in a completely different way. You need a new set of instincts, and you'd need to learn to trust your other senses in a new way. You need to be able to trust things that you normally didn't put a whole lot of trust in. Well, we're in week two of our series on the Beatitudes, and I think in the same way that playing blind baseball would be really challenging for all of us, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is challenging his disciples. 
He's inviting them to see the world from a dramatically different perspective, as different as playing baseball blind. He wants them to develop a new set of spiritual instincts, and most of all, he wants them to learn to trust. He wants them to learn to trust God in a way that they normally don't trust him. Our passage today is Matthew 5, 4. You can turn there now in your Bibles if you would like, and it speaks directly to the challenges and struggles in life that we face, the things that cause us to experience sorrow and sadness and mourning. I don't know about you, but my first instinct when I encounter life's troubles is not to trust God. I'm much more likely to trust in myself or to turn to something or someone else to trust in, and I think that's true for all of us. In the same way that most of us would have a hard time trusting our sense of hearing and direction in blind baseball, most of us have a really difficult time automatically trusting God in the trials of our life. When there's a big change in our job or our family, it's difficult to trust God. When someone we love gets hit with a health crisis, it's difficult to trust God. When a close friend hurts us deeply, it's a struggle to keep trusting the Lord. And when we're drawn in moments of pain to turn to a sinful coping mechanism, it is difficult in that moment instead to trust the Lord and to follow him. Wherever you're at this morning, I'm confident that there's there's probably some area in your life where it's a struggle to trust God. And I'm praying that this passage and this message will speak to you in that space. Steve Lancaster, our new junior high pastor, always has a main takeaway for our junior high kids in every single one of his messages. It's a great way to teach. It's the big idea he wants them to remember. I have a theory that deep down inside, all of us are junior high kids. Look to your right and to your left. Probably deep inside that person, there's still a junior higher who who wants to be loved. We're a little older. In my case, I have a little less hair. Uh, You know, hopefully we're more mature. That's not always the case, though. But I think having one big idea is, is a good idea. And so here's our main takeaway, our big idea for this message. We can trust God with our troubles. That's our big idea, friends. We can trust God with our troubles. And what if that was really true? What if you can trust him to be completely reliable and faithful in the midst of whatever struggle that you're walking through? Wouldn't it change the way that you walked through your struggles? Wouldn't it change the way that you interacted with God and others in the midst of them? Learning to trust God in our troubles is a new instinct. It's a new way of seeing the world. But that is exactly what Jesus wanted for his disciples, and it's exactly what he wants for us this morning. So let's dive into our passage together. Let me read it, and we will pray and ask God to guide us. In Matthew 5, 4, it says this, God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, our trustworthy God, please guide us in your truth this morning. Scripture said that, says that your word teaches us, rebukes us, corrects us, and trains us to live for you. Would your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path? And would it help us to see in a new way? Guide us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to look at several reasons that we can trust God with our troubles. And to see the first, we need to look at the first part of this verse. Blessed are those who mourn. God blesses those who mourn. What does Jesus mean by this phrase, blessed are those who mourn? What is he really saying? Well, to answer this question, we need to look quickly at two errors you could fall into while interpreting this passage. 
And I think in seeing what Jesus does not mean, we'll more clearly see what he does mean. So first of all, this is not a call to constant sorrow. It's not a call to constant sorrow. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, but it's not a command to always carry a sorrowful disposition. In Galatians 5, it says the fruit of the spirit is love and joy, right? In Psalm 118, 24, it says, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We're commanded to rejoice in scripture. So this isn't a call to constant sorrow. Some Christians have the spiritual gift of being a party pooper, don't they? It's, it's a thing, just always serious, always sad. Newsflash, that is not a spiritual gift. <laughs> Jesus does not call us to always be serious or sorrowful, so this is not a call to constant sorrow. It's also not an instant cure for sorrow. And I think this is important. As Adam said last week, the Beatitudes should not be interpreted as promises that say, do this, and if you do it really well, you will automatically receive this. They're more of a gift from God than a, a prescription for, for how to behave. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to watch it. There's a lot of foundational material in there that will set the stage for, for the rest of the series. So check that out online. But this is not a magic formula for dealing with sorrow as if just grieve and, and then magically you'll be com comforted. The process of grieving, as any of you know who have walked through it, is a complex, complicated journey. And scripture itself attests to this reality by recording stories of men and women who walked through difficult things and grieved in different ways. Of course, this includes Jesus himself. He was familiar with sorrow. He knew intense sorrow, and he never treated sorrow as something to quickly move on from or mourning as an instant fix. So this isn't a call to constant sorrow or an instant cure for sorrow. So what, what is it? What is Jesus saying? I think Jesus is referring to a deeper and truer kind of sorrow in this passage. It's, it's not simply mourning as we normally would think of it. One, one scholar whose work I really appreciated, a commentator, put it this way. He's referring to a more fundamental kind of mourning. A more fundamental kind of mourning. I think that's really good. It's a heart that reflects God's heart, a heart that is broken over evil and injustice and sin. And we begin to see this clearly when we look at the way that biblical authors use mourning throughout the scriptures. So we're gonna look at a couple examples together. We'll look at three passages that talk about mourning and, and help us understand it for this first section of the message. The first one is in Hosea chapter four, one through three. You can turn there in your Bibles or we'll have it on the screen as well. In Hosea four, one to three, it says this. Hear the word of the Lord, O people of Israel. The Lord has brought charges against you, saying there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in your land. You make vows and break them. You kill and steal and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, and that is why your land is in mourning, and everyone is wasting away. What we see in this passage, and it's very characteristic of how mourning is used in the prophets, is that mourning is a right response to the reality that humanity has rebelled against God. As we see in this passage, there was no fear of God in their land. There was violence and sin everywhere, and we should be genuinely sorry about this reality. 
It's genuine sorrow and heartfelt remorse over our own sin and the sin that impacts our communities and our world. It's interesting to note that in this passage it says the land is in mourning. There's some other translations that literally say the land mourns. It's as if the physical creation recognizes the reality of sin while God's people don't. In Romans 8 it talks about how the physical creation is groaning and crying out under the weight of our rebellion. And the question for us as God's people is do we join in with this cry or do we ignore it? So often throughout scripture, God's people, the ones who should be giving them their hearts and following him, ignore this reality of brokenness, both in their own lives and in the nations surrounding them. So often they they turn away from, from the Lord, and I think it's wise for us to examine our own hearts and ask if this is the case for us. Are our hearts broken by the reality of sin? Too often this isn't the case. In another prophetic book, the book of Revelation, there's a stern warning to those who refuse to develop this kind of heart attitude towards the Lord. In Revelation 18, we're introduced to the city of Babylon, and there's different ways to interpret this passage, but no matter how you interpret it, it's a city that stands against God's purposes. It's full of sin. It has completely rebelled against him. But look at what what the city of Babylon says in Revelation 18 Verse seven, it says this, she, the city of Babylon, is personified in this passage, she glorified herself, not God, she glorified herself and lived in luxury. She boasted in her heart, I am queen on my throne and I have no reason to mourn. Isn't that interesting? Do you see the heart attitude that's reflected here? It's an attitude that denies the reality of sin and evil. The passage goes on to describe God's stern and sudden response at the final judgment. This is kind of an intense passage, but I think it's important to to read and to hear this. Verses 8 and 9 continue and say, Therefore, these plagues will overtake her in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be completely consumed by fire, for the Lord God who judges her is mighty. And the kings of the world who committed adultery with her and enjoyed her great luxury will mourn for her. Friends, don't miss this. I think this is really important. God's warning is that those who refuse to mourn over sin now will ultimately mourn that they rejected God at the final judgment. But it's not the mourning of repentance. It's the mourning of a wasted life, of an opportunity lost, and of facing the intensity of the justice of God. I think that God includes warnings like this in his word because he loves us. His heart is that we would turn towards him and learn to see the reality of our sin rightly. Let's look at one more passage together and see God's invitation and how it helps us understand this concept of mourning. In the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it says this. The Lord says, turn to me now while there is time. Give me your hearts. Come with fasting, weeping, and mourning. In the next verse it says, don't tear your clothing in your grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return to the Lord your God, for he is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. What God is asking for here is his people's hearts. Not hearts that are perfect or free from sin, but hearts that are broken over the reality of sin. 
It's a heart that's aligned with God's heart because God himself grieves the brokenness of our world. There's a song that we sing with our students on Wednesday nights and Sunday nights, and I love getting to sing with our young people every single week. It's one of my favorite parts of of what I do. But there's a song that, that we enjoy singing called With Everything by Hillsong United, and there's a line in it that's really powerful. It says, open our eyes to see the things that make your heart cry. God, open our eyes to see the things that make your heart cry. Isn't that an amazing thought? As God looks down from heaven, there are things that grieve his heart. And as his people, he invites us to align our hearts with his and to mourn over the things that cause him to mourn. I said earlier, our big idea is that we can trust God in our troubles. And I think when we see this more holistic, deeper, truer understanding of mourning, it points to a reason that we can trust God. We can trust God with our troubles because he mourns with us in them. He sees them for what they are, the result of our rebellion against him, and his heart is broken over it, friends. The heart of God is broken over our sin. God himself mourns, and he invites us to join with him in his mourning. We can trust him because he mourns with us in whatever we are walking through, the struggles and challenges that we are facing. Just recently, my wife and I, uh, moved into a new townhome. And so we've been working through the process of unpacking boxes and doing all of that. And as we were driving over to our new place, we were trying to chant new home, new home to get our two-year-old son really excited about it. And you could see the wheels starting to turn in his head. And he just kind of stopped chanting and he said, will my toys be at new home? <laughs> he was starting to think through, what is this going to be for me? Will my train table be at new home? And then kind of just out of the blue, he said, I'm sad about new home. And my first instinct was to be all excited and say, no, Katie, this is awesome. This is exciting. It's going to be great. It's going to be more space and super fun. But then I stopped and I just thought, you know, it is kind of sad. There is something sad about moving to a new place. And he didn't need me just to correct him and go to a place of feeling the happy emotions. He needed me at that moment to be sad with him. So I said, yeah, you're right. It is kind of sad. Later on, he said, I'm sad about new home and kind of happy. I thought, wow, I think my two-year-old is more emotionally intelligent than I am. <laughs> uh, <laughs> friends, God, God is such a good father. He loves us so much, and he mourns with us in what we are walking through. He, he's content just to be with us. If you need a friend to, to sit with in your pain and your struggle, God is there for you to share, to share your grief. He wants us to go there and and to share those things with them boldly. Jesus wants his disciples to be the kind of people who are engaged with the brokenness of the world instead of ignoring it. What God promises is that when we engage, and this takes courage, it takes boldness, it takes community, we need to do this together with one another. When we engage, he does not leave us alone. He meets with us in that place. As our, our key passage says in Matthew 5, 4, God blesses those who mourn for they will be comforted. We've looked a little bit at what it means to mourn biblically. Let's look at the second phrase in our passage, they will be comforted. 
When Jesus says that those who mourn will be comforted, he's not talking about just a vague sense of comfort, a a random feeling of peace that you might feel. He's actually talking about the comfort that God provides through our connection to him. It's a very tangible comfort that God provides. We see a little bit of this when we look at, at the Greek. The Greek word for comfort is parakaleo. And it's very closely connected to a word that Jesus uses for the Holy Spirit in John 14, 6, parakletos, where Jesus says, I will, don't be sad that I'm leaving. I'm going to send you another helper, another counselor, as some translations put it, another comforter. Isn't that interesting that part of the divine name as revealed by Jesus to us in the person of the Holy Spirit is the comforter? It's part of who God is. He's a comforter for us. He's an advocate on our behalf when no one else will fight for us. He's our encourager when we grow weary with discouragement. He's our counselor when we don't know where to turn. And he's our comforter when we feel the weight of sorrow. I think here in this, we see the second reason that we can trust God with our troubles. We can trust God with our troubles because he comforts us in them. He meets us specifically and tangibly to give us his comfort. What does it look like for God to to comfort us? I want to briefly go through three ways that God comforts us as we walk through the trials and troubles of this life. The first way is that God comforts us through his presence. He comforts us through his presence. Uh, We're going to look at Psalm 23 verse 4, a very familiar passage about the comfort of God. In some ways, it's, it's so familiar, I think we can miss how, how powerful it really is. In Psalm 23, 4, it says, Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I will not be afraid, for you are close beside me. He's with us. Your rod and your staff protect me and comfort me. Whatever we walk through, he's with us. And isn't it interesting that it says his rod and his staff protect us. The rod and the staff was kind of a defensive weapon to keep fierce animals away. It was also something he could knock the sheep on the head with if they were wandering off the path. And it just hit me this week, God protects us from external threats against us, and he guides us and protects us from the internal wanderings of our own heart. He protects us from anything outside of us that would come at us and try to take us off the path and our own heart wonderings. And that for me is really comforting that God protects us in that way. Whatever we walk through, we can trust that he is with us. And I think it's true that we often experience God most deeply in the valleys, in the darkness. Sometimes it's when we know his presence the most. My mom is currently walking with a friend who has cancer. And so her friend is going through chemotherapy and they've developed a relationship in the midst of of this season and kind of been, uh, my mom's been driving her to the hospital just to be with her. And her friend said this the other day. I thought this was um, so insightful. She said, I never would have chosen this. I never would have chosen this path, but I wouldn't trade it because of the way that God has met me in it. Isn't that incredible? I wouldn't trade it because of the way that God has met me in it. She was experiencing the presence of God in a really deep and profound way in this time. And so often that's the case. God is with us in our troubles, friends. He is our comforter. The second way that God comforts us is through his people. 
He comforts us through his people. In 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5, it says this. I think this is such an interesting verse about comfort. We'll read this together. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort that God has given us. Isn't that interesting? God himself is the source of all comfort. He is the one who will comfort us, but God uses us. He uses you and me as the delivery vehicle of of that comfort. I'm not sure why God did it that way. It seems like it'd be more effective for him to just do it himself, but he wants to use us as part of the process. Think about the difficult things that you have walked through. Think about the ways that God has comforted you in the midst of walking through them. God's purpose is that that same comfort that you received in those moments that you would take that and give it to someone else who's walking through something similar. God has purpose and and intention in the difficult things that we are walking through. I think sometimes we underestimate what God can do through us and how valuable our words of comfort can be, even in just common, ordinary, normal conversation. This reminded me of a story that was in the news a couple days ago. There was a 90-year-old woman who had a painting that was worth millions of dollars in her home, and she didn't even know about it. It was a 12 by 24 canvas, kind of looked like a religious icon, and she had it hanging in her kitchen right above a hot plate where she kept food warm. When it came time to sell her home, an auctioneer came home and looked at the value of things. They were going to do a big auction. And they realized the painting was a lost Renaissance masterpiece that was worth $5 million. Wow. <laughs> That's a, a pretty good day when you're moving. Amber and I did not find anything worth near that much. <laughs> we sold some stuff on Facebook Marketplace, but there were no, no million-dollar finds. I think our words of comfort can kind of be like that. And I know it's a little bit of a silly illustration, but they could be worth so much more than than we know, especially to those who receive them. We may not even know that we're speaking super valuable words of God's comfort to the one who receives them. They could be directly from God. I experienced the other day at the junior high retreat. I was going through a season myself of just feeling some difficulty and some discouragement in ministry. I'm sure many of us have been there. I was wondering if if what I was doing was really having an impact and making a difference. And we were walking back from uh, an event that we had at the pool back to the main chapel. And one of our adult leaders, who's a mom of some junior high students who have been through our ministry, came up to me and just started talking to me. She encouraged me and told me what a huge impact junior high had had on her kids and how they're now serving the Lord. And I think to her, it was just normal, ordinary, common conversation. But to me, it was exactly what I needed to serve God well that retreat. It was like the Holy Spirit took those words and he just breathed them to life full of comfort and encouragement for for my weary heart. Sometimes that's what God can do. Be looking for opportunities where God might use you to speak a word of comfort to someone else this week. It could literally be a message from God. We've seen that God comforts us through his presence, through his people. God also comforts us through his eternal plan. He has an eternal plan to set everything that is wrong or broken with the world to rights. This is such 
good news. And we get a glimpse of this at Revelation 21, three through five, towards the end of the Bible. Revelation 21, three says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. Aren't you looking forward to that day? All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. God promises that in the future, we will receive ultimate eternal comfort through his plan to renew all things and redeem a broken world. I think sometimes we feel the weight of a broken world so much we can lose hope that this is actually going to happen. But friends, it's a promise and God will deliver on it. He will be with us. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain and all things will be made new. There's great comfort, especially to those of us walking through something difficult this morning in this promise. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 through 17, it says this. I think these are really powerful words. It says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal comfort and a wonderful hope, comfort you and strengthen you in every good thing you do and say. Because of God's promise to renew all things, that's exactly what we have. We have eternal comfort and we have a wonderful hope. So we've looked at what it means to mourn according to scripture. And we've looked at some specific ways that God comforts us. We've seen that we can trust God in our troubles because he mourns with us in them and because he comforts us in them. He takes practical, tangible steps to, to guide us. Now I'd like to ask, ask ourselves, I'd like to, for us to ask ourselves, excuse me, what does it look like for us to apply these truths to our lives? I think sometimes our world moves so fast and there's so much to do with our jobs and cared for our families and, um, you know, just being barraged by the intensity of a thousand different forms of media. There's a temptation just to check out of the brokenness of this world. That's not what Jesus wants for us as his followers. He wants us to engage. And so here's two ideas for practical steps that we can take to apply this. The first is what I would call the discipline of engagement the discipline of engagement. And it's simply taking small, intentional steps to engage with the brokenness of the world around us. And this could take so many different forms. Maybe it's reading a well-written magazine article about an issue of injustice, just to learn more and get your heart in sync with what's happening in the world. Maybe it's calling a friend who just lost a loved one. Maybe it's visiting someone in the hospital who's been sick and impacted by illness or cooking a meal for them. Someone cooked us a meal this week while we were moving. It was a huge blessing for us. Maybe it's just having a neighbor over for lunch. Or if you're a student, maybe it's sitting with that student who's super lonely that no one else sits with. It's just taking small steps to engage the reality that our world is broken. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Is there a cause or a person or a place that God is calling you to engage? Maybe something that he's laying on your heart, even now? 
Pay special attention when the Holy Spirit nudges you to do this. I think sometimes God will work through us in these moments, and sometimes God will minister to our own hearts, and he'll help us to see the world in a new and different way. A few weeks ago, I had an opportunity to spend some time with a friend whose father had just passed away, and I was hoping to bring some kind of word of encouragement or or comfort. And I think I left way more encouraged than him. He shared about his dad and the impact that he had had in, in following Jesus in his life. And I just left incredibly in tune with the reality that we need to be about the business of the kingdom of God. So often when we step into the brokenness of this world, God does use us, but he also works in us. Helps us see the world rightly, see it in a new way. So God this week may have something to teach you as you engage with our broken world. The second practical step is the discipline of confession. And stay with me for a minute. I know it seems like a little bit of a weird connection, but I believe the spiritual discipline of confession can help us see the world in a different way. It helps align our hearts with the reality that the world is broken. Did anybody wake up excited this morning to learn about the spiritual discipline of confession? I, did, I didn't expect any hands to be raised. It's, not, it's kind of one of the neglected spiritual disciplines. It's one that we don't talk about very often, and it's not as fun as um, rest or, or Sabbath or quiet time and coffee. But I do think it's an important spiritual discipline. There are sections of scripture that are dedicated to confession, and so it's a good one for us to talk about. I experienced the Um, the power of confession when I was at Covenant Seminary. And this was the first time I had really experienced it. Every single chapel at Covenant, they read a prayer of confession. Sometimes it was directly from God's word. Other time it was a prayer that was written around kind of an area of injustice or an area of struggle that we all face. They'd read it from the pulpit and then have a time of silent reflection for us to confess our sins to God. And then someone would read a a verse of pardon or a a declaration of the assurance of God's forgiveness. And at first it felt a little weird. It felt kind of mechanical to do it week after week after week. But as I practiced it for months and even years being at Covenant, I came to really enjoy that part of the service. It helped get my heart more in tune with what was wrong in my own life and what was wrong around me in my community with, with my friends and the brokenness of the world as a whole. I want to challenge you to take a step this week, kind of to flex a different spiritual muscle or a different spiritual sense. I want to challenge you to try praying a prayer of confession to God every day this week. It could just be pausing for a few moments during your quiet time to confess your sins to God. It could involve reading uh, passages of scripture like Psalm 51 or Nehemiah 9 or Daniel 9, where there's lengthy confessions in the Bible. There's also some really great resources for this online. One of my favorites is a book called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of prayers and there's many confessions there. And if you simply Google Valley of Vision confession, prayers of confession, you could find many of them online. Some really great resources that are available. But I I challenge you to try doing that this week and see how God uses it to shape your heart. See how God God works in you to help you to see the world in a different way. I wanted us to apply this this morning, and so we're actually going to read a prayer of confession here in our service. It will be up on the screen here in a moment, and I'll read it out loud, and then we're going to have about a minute of silent reflection. 
It may feel a little awkward because it's going to be kind of quiet. I just wanted to name that, except for the awkward cough here or there. It'll probably be quiet. But I think that silence is really good. We don't have too many moments where we're quiet in our culture right now. And in the silence, it creates space for God to speak. So let me read this, and then we'll take a moment to reflect and, and bring our own confession to God. Merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Take a moment and just, and just pray to God. You can continue to look on the screen or you can close your eyes and Bring, bring your own confession to God or something that is heavy on your heart. prayer continues, in your mercy, forgive what we have been, help us amend what we are, and direct what we shall be, so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways. To the glory of your holy name, through Christ our Lord. And then friends, hear this this assurance of God's forgiveness. If by grace and through faith you have trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I hear these words from Joel 2.13, which we looked at earlier in our message. The Lord your God is merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. Isn't that a beautiful refrain? It echoes throughout scripture that God is merciful and compassionate, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. I think there at that intersection, the intersection between our brokenness and the grace of God, we see one final reason that we can trust God with our troubles. We can trust God with our troubles because he provides the ultimate solution for them. He provides the ultimate solution for them, friends. We see that he mourns with us in them. We see that he comforts us in them. And more than that, he does provide the ultimate solution. And the solution is his grace It's what Jesus did for us on the cross when he purchased for us the righteousness that we couldn't earn ourselves, when he died for our sins and rose victorious over death. This set in motion God's plan to redeem a broken world. It's a plan that will one day be brought to completion. I think when we see God's heart for us on the cross, it changes our hearts doesn't it? It changes our hearts in a powerful way. It helps us get more in touch with our own brokenness. We see how much that he loved us. This results in hearts that are truly transformed, hearts that see God, ourselves, and our sin rightly, and so they are hearts that mourn and weep, but they are also hearts that see the comfort and grace in all of its fullness and beauty, that see the comfort and the grace of God in all its fullness and beauty. And so they're hearts that also rejoice 
And I think there we see a glimpse of what it really means to be a Christian. It's someone engaged honestly and seriously in the brokenness of our world and is someone who's lighthearted and confident and joyful because they have been forgiven and loved by the king of the universe. Let's pray together. If you are currently walking through something difficult, you can go ahead and close your eyes and and bow your heads. I wanted to read a passage of scripture over you that I hope will give you comfort and hope. This is a passage that Jesus himself spoke that kind of defined his ministry. It's from Isaiah 61. So Father God, we come to you now in prayer and we bring you the things that are heavy and difficult that we are walking through. God, you said you came to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of asses, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. God, for anyone who needs it, would you give them hope? Would you fill their hearts with hope? You know what's going on in our lives, God. You are close to us. You are with us. And I pray that whatever challenges we are walking through, where we need your grace and we need your comfort, that God, you would do something in the midst of them. That you would work, that you would shape our hearts, that you would teach us more about you that you would so powerfully work, God, that you would be glorified and that we would become oaks of righteousness that display your faithfulness and your goodness and your character and your love. So God, thank you so much for how you love us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.